0: Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. We welcome those visiting with us, and we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew today. Hear now the word of God. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. This last Thursday over the noon lunch hour, on one of those top five Minnesota winter days, right? Sunny, fresh snow, 25 degrees, no wind. I'm enjoying some cross-country skiing, and he didn't hear me, Uh, rather, he didn't see, uh, yeah, he didn't hear me, and I didn't see him. Easy for you to say, right? So this guy is going down the path. We're not going that fast. And I'm saying to him, on your left, and I'm saying a little bit louder on your left. He didn't see me coming, but I didn't realize that in his ears were earbuds. So there's a lack of communication there, right? A cool hand, Luke. We have a failure to communicate. I end up bumping into him. He says a few crass words. It was uh, not, no one was going very fast. No one got hurt. He gets up. I go back to him and I said, Listen, I am sorry I didn't see the problem, which is that he couldn't hear. Everything is fine, and he smiled, although a few seconds earlier it certainly wasn't fine in his world. Why do I bring this up? Because this passage is about seeing and hearing, seeing Christ and hearing his word, his voice, his call. What we have here, as Eric Alexander says, is a remarkable irony. Jesus has been spending years now with these disciples who don't see with eyes of faith in the same way that these blind men do see. These blind men are a picture in some ways of Israel in her blindness. A picture of all of our need for Christ to open our eyes. This passage is a pointer to Jesus. That's really what it's about more than anything. That in Jesus we see the new creation has come. That in Jesus we see the true and perfect Israel is here. That in Jesus, we have a Savior who has both power and compassion. First, let's look at the faith of the blind man as as we ask this question, do we see and understand and believe this Jesus first? It's the end of Jesus' ministry. If you'll notice from this point to the end of Matthew, it's the last week of his life. He's about 33 years old. Over three years with the disciples, And the last third of the gospel covers, as you'll see next week, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, through the resurrection. It's spring. Passover is coming. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. It's the calm before the storm. We saw last week, Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem, what has been planned before the foundation of the world. He will give his life a ransom for many. It will involve his disciples deserting him, Judas betraying him, Pilate and others mocking him, scourging him, and ultimately he's crucified. He is poured out as a drink offering. He is drinking the cup that the Father has for him. He is bearing our sin, the wrath and judgment of God for all of his people. That's what awaits him and he knows it. And he's going there and he's steadfast in it. He knows the mission that he's there to accomplish, the redemption for all of his people As he's going there, thousands of others are going with him. The picture here is of a massive crowd. To avoid going through Samaria, those who lived in the north of Galilee would travel east to the Sea of Galilee, south along the Jordan River. And there you would have a town that's the name, of course, Jericho. It's an oasis-type town. It's a place in the Old Testament that was the oldest city known to mankind. That's where Joshua was. Do you remember that, children? Marching around the town? It's the entrance into the promised land. It's where Rahab lived, one of the ancestors of Jesus who's in his genealogy back in Matthew 1. At this point, Old Testament Jericho is in rubble. There's a New Testament Jericho about a mile from the Old Testament site built by Herod the Great. It's like his winter residence, a beautiful place, a prosperous town. People would go there, the wealthy would live there, poor people would beg there, they would often receive food there. It was a place on the road as you're heading to Jerusalem for your last stop before 3,300 feet of elevation change mountains, and very dangerous roads that would await. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? That's on this road. So Jesus and the disciples are about to head, along with the crowd, to Jerusalem for the Passover. As they're leaving Jericho, we meet two blind men. Now if you read Mark and Luke, you maybe notice that they speak of only one. There's not a contradiction here. Matthew is an eyewitness to the event. Mark and Luke receive their testimony from eyewitnesses, and Mark and Luke focus in on just one man. Matthew mentions there's two. Do you know the name of this man? Do you remember from the other Gospels? Blind Bartimaeus. The word Bartimaeus actually means son of Timaeus. So it's possible that we don't really know his real name, that he's just being referred to as Timaeus's son. Isn't that interesting? But why is he named? That's even perhaps more important to ask. Because of all the people Jesus healed in the Gospels, there's only two that are named. Of all of them. Lazarus and this guy. One person says, well, he's probably named because later on in the history of the church, he's well known. So someone can look this up and say... That's how Bartimaeus met Jesus? That's what happened? Wow! We know this guy. Which probably indicates he, by the grace of God, persevered in his faith. He followed Jesus as a disciple. He didn't abandon Christ like so many who kind of came for the perks and then left when it got hard. The son of Timaeus and another man, unnamed by the side of the road. They're blind. They're poor. They can't see, but they can hear. Do you notice what the text says in verse 30? They heard that Jesus was passing by. In the other Gospels, we read them say, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the crowd saying, saying, Okay, here's who he is. He's there. And it's interesting in the light of the fact that the other Gospels say Jesus of Nazareth, that they reply in the way they do. Jesus of Nazareth is kind of an indicator. This is who Jesus is from Nazareth. He's a human. This is where he's from, like Joe from Bloomington. But Barnabas and his friend don't call Jesus by that name. They don't say, Jesus of Nazareth, I need some money. I need some food, which they would have needed. But they cry out in a loud cry, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Beloved, they are a picture in this cry for mercy, of our need for mercy. Perhaps you've had eye problems. Maybe you know someone who does, or someone who's blind or nearly blind, and the pain and the sorrow that can come into a life of blindness. This man is blind and his friend and destitute. One person once said to blind and deaf Helen Keller, Isn't it terrible to be blind? She said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. There is something worse than physical blindness. Spiritual blindness. To be blind but not know you're blind. To be spiritually blind and not realize it and think that you see. 2 Corinthians 4, this is not just a human kind of horizontal thing going on here. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving from from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God who is the image, uh, of the glory of Jesus who is the image of God. So why does someone not trust Jesus? This is why. A spiritual blindness. And this text in this way is a mirror for us. Here's an analogy one person says. A person who doesn't recognize his need for Christ or her need for Christ is like a husband or wife whose marriage is falling apart and their spouse has been trying to tell them for years it's falling apart and they don't get it. They just think, okay, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to do this better and everything will be fine. They don't realize how dire it is. And there's a sense, this pastor says, that the day that he or she wakes up and realizes what they have done to their marriage is the most hopeful day of their life because God may be bringing them to rock bottom. They may now cry out for the help that they need. They might be humbled by the Lord in this. As Flavel said, Christ is not sweet until sin is made bitter to us. Everyone approaches Jesus either in their pride, like I've got it all together, or in childlike trust, dependence, brokenness, sin, and need. These blind men see that they need mercy. They don't understand all of that will involve yet. Of course, Christ hasn't gone to the cross yet, but they know they have a need for a Savior. It's the opposite of the rich young ruler. Remember him? He didn't think he needed mercy. He thought he was keeping the law of God. They cry out, Lord, acknowledging this is not just a man. Have mercy on us, son of David. The cry, a blind man, David, on your way to Jerusalem. One scholar brings this out. I don't know if you saw this. I didn't see this until I saw him bring it out. But what does this remind you of? Do you remember David? He's anointed king. Hebron. He's 30 years old. 2 Samuel 5. Where does he go then? He goes up to Jerusalem. He's the Lord's king. When he gets to Jerusalem, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, taunted David. You'll never get in here. Even the blind and the lame could keep you out, David. Here is Jesus Great David's greater son, about to go into Jerusalem. David had overcome the blind literally and physically, but Jesus comes to give sight to the blind in grace and power and compassion. He comes as the son of David, the one promised in 2 Samuel 7, who would sit on David's throne forever. That's who he comes as. He comes as God in the flesh. And these blind men are acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah, son of David. The promise that Israel waited for in the thousand years before, from David's time until Christ, the promise that they waited for as they're in exile. As the angel went to Mary and said to her, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of what? His father David. As we read our Bibles, beloved, we read it as Christ is at the center right here in all of it. Paul begins Romans 1, we heard that earlier, with this very promise. The gospel promised through the prophets. It's about Jesus who is descended, Romans 1, 3, from David. According to the flesh, according to his human lineage. Who is declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is no ordinary man. This is the God man. And this blind man can see in a way before he can see. It's by the Spirit of God he can say this. The disciples, as they're walking with Jesus, remember one section earlier? They're talking about how great they are. Who's going to be on the right hand? Who's going to be on the left hand in the kingdom? Who's the greatest among us? That's what they're talking about. This is a foil to that. Right after this, the disciples who symbolize Israel in their blindness. Here are two blind men who see. Two outcasts, two nobodies, two people on the side of the road that nobody wants to deal with. The most unimportant as the world counts important. These are some of the last who will be first, Matthew 20, verse 16. This is a picture of the citizens of the kingdom of God who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This blind man sees The eyes of his heart are enlightened, as 2 Corinthians 4 says. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They cry out in faith. But the crowd, verse 31, rebukes them. You're thinking, this also just happened, didn't it? It did. Remember, the disciples and those parents and those children. Jesus doesn't have time for children. Jesus has has more important things to do. Now it's even closer to the cross, closer to Jerusalem. He's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for these guys. Stop bothering him. Come on, Bartimaeus, Bart. Put a lid on it. Quiet down. We don't want to deal with you. They rebuke them. Don Carson, the crowds were willing to bask in Jesus' presence, but they reflected none of Jesus' compassion. When I read that, I was convicted. Especially as you study the Bible, you can enjoy the presence of Jesus and then in our sin, lash out in prideful anger at those we love. Here's a question over lunch. Disciples of Jesus put obstacles in the way of people coming to Jesus. Discuss. How do Jesus' disciples do that today? Impede people from coming to Christ. Discuss together among yourselves and report back. It's a question that Paul Tripp says leads us to ask do we have time for people? Tripp writes, it was after the September 11th terrorist attacks. He had a conversation with the manager of a restaurant in the World Trade Center. The manager said, I can't get over the grief that I never saw the 250 people who worked for me as people. They were waiters, chefs, hosts, event planners, but they weren't people. They were just there to do what I needed them to do. I've been to their funerals, he said. Now they are people to me, but they're gone an encouragement as we go and get coffee somewhere, go to the grocery store and to, to engage those that are serving and working in those places, to look at them, to love them, to talk to them, to ask questions of them. As I read Trip reflect on this, I, my wife and I were out for a Valentine's Day lunch date and the waitress was there talking to us and talking to us about what we were doing that night and we said we're going to a prayer meeting and at first I didn't think about it. But then she came back and I said, well, how can we pray for you? She's an agnostic, but she said, I I struggle with motivation at work. I struggle with knowing kind of my job and where I should work. I was convicted about that. Like, as I go about day to day, can I visit some places and pray for courage to love the people that God puts before us each day, to share the gospel at the, the right time in the right way, to pray that the Lord would do that and would bring true faith into the hearts of those who don't know him. The blind men don't give up. They're rebuked, but they don't walk away. They don't say, woe is me. They don't put their tail between their legs. They cry out all the more. This is a gospel given grace to them. They're persistent. Like that persistent widow in Luke 18. They keep on keeping on. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And this is the only time Jesus came to Jericho before the end of his life. There's an application here. There was no kind of, okay, we'll see if Jesus is here tomorrow. This was it. There was an urgency here. The devil's favorite word, loved ones, is tomorrow. Tomorrow's a great day to trust Christ. Tomorrow's a great day to go to church and worship God. Tomorrow's a great day to reconcile with your loved one. Tomorrow's a great day to love your wife and kids, and tomorrow. These blind men come in humble but bold faith. They ask for mercy. They keep on. They expect great things from Jesus. When it comes to things like healing and marriage and pregnancy, we don't know what God's will is as we pray. We pray, God, if you will, heal this loved one but we don't say, God, if you can. Here's the two dangers in prayer. One is presumption, like Jesus is a genie. You put him into the bottle and rub him, and Aladdin's genie comes out, and you get wishes. The other extreme is cynicism, kind of a, an apathy, expecting too little to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within him, to him be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church to all generations. Emmaus wrote crying out to God for mercy. This is the fundamental prayer of the Christian. And their persistence is ultimately pointing beyond them to Jesus. This is not about these men, ultimately, is it? It's about, secondly, the Lord who has power and compassion. Amidst the cry, the busyness, the crowd, it says Jesus stops. They are wanting to stop, the crowd is, these blind men from coming to Jesus. Jesus flips it. He stops the procession. He cares for the least and the lowest. And he asks them, verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? Very similar to the question from last week. Remember that? He doesn't ask for information. He knows these are blind men. But he asks them to specify their need. As Alexander says, is this a dumb question by Jesus, kids? Do you wonder that? Isn't this obvious? What do you want me to do for you? But he says, it isn't obvious at all. Jesus is not saying to them, If you had one wish in the world, what would it be? If you said that to someone, you would expect them to say, well, I want to see, right? That's my wish. But you would never dream of them saying, what do you want me to do for you? He goes on. And anticipate the answer to be, I want you to give me my sight back. What he points out is this. Jesus' question to them goes beyond their lip confession of who Jesus is to their heart conviction of who he is. If he is the son of God, the Messiah, the son of David, the one God promised, then he is able to give us our sight back. That's what faith does. It trusts in Jesus. It grabs hold of him here and says, Lord, I'm weak, help me. And only when we know Jesus' identity are we capable of asking Him for the right things. Do we love Jesus, beloved? Or do we love the same things we have always loved and just think Jesus can get them for us? See the difference here? These men trust in Christ. They throw off their cloak, Mark says. That might be all he owns. He's a poor man. Cloak is gone. He doesn't say, okay, give me food. He doesn't say teacher, like the rich young ruler. He says, Lord. He sees Christ as Lord. And verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. That word pity is the same word for compassion. We've seen that throughout Matthew's gospel. Jesus has compassion for the crowds. What is Jesus really like? That's what Matthew wants us to think about. Of all the emotions of, his, of the Lord Jesus described in the New Testament, what is the most common one? Do you remember? We've re- revisited this a few times. What is it? Compassion. He has amazing love for his people. Love is the foundation of his compassion. So this is not just kind of an intellectual thing. In the depths of his being, that's the word here for compassion, compassion when your tummy is kind of churning, kids, when you have deep feeling for someone, deep love for someone. Jesus saw what the fallen world has done, what these men are suffering with. He's about to go to the cross and lay down his life for his people in their place. And he has the depth of feeling and care and compassion and love for these two blind men. This is why he came Bowels of mercy. This is who Christ is. He's not distant. He's not a tyrant. He's not cynical. He's not uncaring. He's not bothered by you when you cry out to him. He wants you to cry out to him. He loves it when you pour out your heart to him in prayer. His pity, his compassion. What else did he do? It can be easy to just kind of skip over this. What did he do? See it, kids? He touched their eyes. He touched a leper. He touched Peter's mother-in-law. He touched the eyes of other blind men. He's done this before. The touch of the Messiah. There's an application to us, loved ones, as we care for each other in the right context, in the right way, a hug, a handshake, words of encouragement. That can really encourage someone who's down and distressed and lonely and afraid, reminding them of the presence of God with them, reminding them of the goodness of God to them. We are not robots. We're not isolated. We are the family of God, showing each other compassion as we have been shown compassion by Jesus. He touches their eyes. He heals them. No going to the eye doctor. No drops in your eyes. When you can't see for a while, you've hella had that, right? No LASIKs, no surgery. The power of the Son of God, who has come to make all things new. The breaking in of the new creation. This is a picture of that. God's kingdom. God's king. And one day, the consummation of it all awaits all of those that the Lord loves and is saved by his grace. This points to that day. Right now, you suffer. Your eyes over time, lose their vision, don't they? Glasses, contacts. Your bodies break down. The diseases and afflictions of this fallen world sometimes are more than we can grasp. But one glorious day, we will be like Christ. We will be made to be with him and enjoy him forever. We will be with a glorified body in a new heavens and a new earth. This points to that day, a day of hope that awaits you, Christian, they gain their sight immediately. And what do they see? When they see for the first time, they see the face of Jesus. And that will be the greatest of all sights for us. One day, beloved in Christ, you will see the face of your savior. It will stir you, it will hold you. It'll be more beautiful than anything of this world. He will say to you, Come, good and faithful servant, I have died for your sins. I have bought you with my blood. Come and behold my beauty. As Jesus heals him, he is fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies. Do you know that there's no record of a prophet or a servant healing the blind in the Old Testament? Only God does that, Exodus 4. God gives sight to the blind. Isaiah 29, the deaf hear, the blind see. The lame will walk, Isaiah 35. This is a sign that the Messiah is here. John the Baptist is struggling with doubts. Maybe you're there today. Maybe doubt has really clouded your vision of Jesus. John said, go to Jesus, ask him, is he the Messiah? Is he the son of David? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And what did Jesus say to him? Tell it to John. Oh, John, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind receive their sight. This did not sideline Jesus from his mission. This is his mission. Yes, he's going to the cross to die for our sins. But do you remember in Matthew eight as well, as Isaiah fifty three says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He is that suffering servant. He will do this for all of his people, open their eyes. Do you remember Saul on the road to Damascus? He's persecuting Christians. He's wanting them to be put to death. He has physical eyes to see. He doesn't see spiritually. He meets the risen Christ on that road. Christ blinds his eyes. Acts 9. A few days later, he's in the presence of Ananias. Ananias heals him. Scales fell off his eyes. And what does he say right away, Saul? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Much like what these blind beggars are saying. Immediately they followed Jesus. Do you see that verse 34? So when you see Jesus, when his spirit gives us new birth, when we trust in him as our savior, we follow him. We want to live for his glory. Yes, we still struggle with blindness. Yeah, we're not yet in his presence. But we want to follow him to bear fruit for him in the midst of our illness, to know that he is enough. He is sufficient. One man says, I once was strong, but now I've lost my strength, my health, The illness has shown me I still go after false lovers, he said, like health. I'm still prone to think Jesus is not enough. We're all there. I still think I need to be healthy and energetic to be happy. But I'm learning, he says, to find my sufficiency in Jesus. The resurrection of Christ from the dead reminds me that all things will one day be made well. Everything will be okay, Christian. Living as a disciple of Jesus changes everything. Knowing his love for you, here's how this changes in particular application, our view of the church. John Moffat from Theocast. When thinking of our call now as a disciple to love God and love others, ask this question. Am I a help to my church? Do they feel my love? He says when we ignore God's love for us, This question turns into, how is my church helping me? Do I feel loved? That's profound. Here's how it impacts our prayers. As we're praying, we're praying for those children that aren't walking with the Lord. And we're praying for us as parents, that not only would God save our children, but that he would help us as parents not to be fearful or anxious, or bitter, or passive, or controlling. When we're praying for the conversion of a loved one, we're praying God would bring them to faith in Christ, but we're also praying that we would grow more loving, and kind, and patient, and honest in the way that we interact with them. God is changing us as disciples to be more like Jesus. Beloved, if we are blind, we kind of look at this and think, well, that's an interesting intellectual thing that Jesus does here, but it's unmoving. But when God's Spirit pours the gospel into our hearts, the eyes of our hearts by the Spirit, what? Are enlightened, Ephesians 1. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable power and the greatness of that power toward you, Christian, who believe. That power that raised Christ from the dead. And so as we come today, we acknowledge we have an eyesight problem. The problem is often our restless hearts allow the struggles and disappointments of life to dominate our vision. So we live as those who are temporarily blind. But now we come on the day of corporate worship and we say, God, help me to see with eyes of faith, Jesus, to rest in his righteousness, to trust in his blood, to live in gratitude, to know that your presence is always with us, to not let my blindness and my struggles and my afflictions cloud my vision. Open the eyes of my heart, God, that I would gaze upon Jesus, that I would again see him in his glory, his majesty, that I would bow before him in humble submission to him, to love him, to obey him, to worship him, and that I would rise to live with hope restored. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is coming again. May the courage of faith in Jesus for Emmaus Road today be renewed. Amen.